0: okay welcome to unapologetically black unicorns or welcome back if you've been here before today i have um a guest and it's somebody that um i'm just getting to know but have been um okay lurking i've been lurking and following vesper so vesper Moore is with me today vesper why don't you introduce yourself
1: yeah, yeah, it's great to be here. Thank you, Karis, uh, for for inviting me on. And uh, my name is Vesper Moore. I do a variety of things, I'd say, like out in the world. But I describe myself as a mental health and disability rights activist, at least more widely for the broader community. I do prefer the term "mad activist," disability justice activist. But uh, in terms of what I do in my day to day, I help build peer-run organizations around the world and do a lot of operations based in the United States, an organization called the Kiva Centers. I oversee another organization doing fabulous work called Madness Network News, publishing and speaking to the voices of mad folk more widely and not just the whitewashed mad folk we've come to know, but uh, the black and brown mad folk, right, largely that aren't often highlighted. So with that resurgence with that work. I think uh, mad liberation, which, you know, I know we're going to be talking more about mad liberation is really at the center of what I do.
0: Wow. so maybe we should back up a little bit because sometimes we're using terminology that either may not, people may not have heard before. I have a wide variety of listeners and, or they're defining it one way, but let's talk about how you would define sort of mad madness, mad liberation, like the whole nine yards. So when we use the word mad, what does that mean?
1: So this, this definition aligns very nicely with the definition of neuroqueerness, which I can talk about that too a little bit, and uh, neurodiversity and being neurodivergent. But the idea of mad is meant to subvert and defy our ideas of... What is uh, societally accepted as convention, uh, and simultaneously subvert and defy our ideas of sanity? What is sane, right? So, mad can be used as a socio-political identity in that way, very similarly to queerness, very similarly to a variety of terms that uh, communities reclaim.
0: Wow, I love the I, this idea, yes, of reclaiming. So. How did you get into that, and how did you find folks and connect to folks, or were you already connected and you all kind of rose up? Like, what, what is that all? Because you're also young.
1: Yeah, yeah. So yeah, I'm a youngin.
0: <laughs>
1: yeah. Oh, uh, you know, for me, I kind of wish I had discovered ideas of mad liberation, neurodiversity, many things. Actually, I don't even know how prevalent neurodiversity was as a term trying to think back to that history it yeah i don't even think it was really coined yet but i was institutionalized on and off for four years and that experience was one really harmful but also really eye-opening i think what's so Fascinating to me about psychiatric oppression and 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 some of these experiences, uh, and also horrifying is 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 the complexity of what is at play in psychiatric institutions, both from the staff, both from the people who are deemed patients, and how people who come back who are like, I'm gonna help my people, I'm going to help work with them, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that." End up policing their own communities and hurting their own communities in many different ways and the trauma and the complexity of the trauma at play. I think my introduction was through peer support um, and I continue to do peer support work because I do believe in it as as Indigenous community work, as transformative work because that's where peer support's roots really are. And I do think of it as a tool to decolonize the mental health and medical industrial complex, as well as a way of sustaining our movements, right? So
0: right, right. So okay, we're about ready to get real deep here. So um, we already got deep. We're just gonna keep we're just gonna keep going here. because um, you talked about decolonizing the medical industrial complex. Yes. Because I think this is a f- somewhat I'm going to say it is a possibly newer concept in our space. I know when we were working here in California on our um, state peer legislation, one of the things that I wanted to make sure of is that we were not just addressing, for example, cultural competency but also structural competency and structural barriers that mm. impact people's whole health and well-being, which means it's going to impact your emotional well-being, et cetera. And the response to that was, no, no, we don't need that. We don't need structural competency. And I'm like, yeah, we do. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I'm just trying to kind of, like when we talk about decolonizing, first of all, again, we're going to break it down a little bit. What are we decolonizing? What's being decolonized?
1: Right. Yeah. So we are working away from the ideas that are the contingency of the value of our body and minds are one contingent on what we produce. And secondly, the fact that we weren't meant to work and live the way that we live, that nature us being nature and living in nature, regardless of if you live in a city, a suburban area, uh, many different areas, right? We are interacting with nature and there's so much happening that's, that's corrupted the nature in ourselves and the ways in which we live. And often the way that we address that is through a deficit model. And that deficit model often puts the onus and the blame back on the individual. It takes us away from collectivism, uh, which is a feminist idea, which is a, an idea that, that is founded in indigenous rights when we talk about restorative justice and a lot of these ideas of restoration and working together. And it puts it back on the individual as the responsibility to recover, recovery, which is why I think we have challenge, a challenge sometimes with that idea. Of recovery as it relates to a lot of folks. But then I also think, you know, people have the right to claim whether or not that term recovery is liberatory to them. I'm not here to police that further. But getting back to decolonization, it is deconstructing those ideas. And I think, you know, indigenous folk like myself and many other folk, we use that term decolonize, and it's really meant for us. I mean, a lot of people use the term. Um, to kind of disarticulate kind of de- destructure a lot of these these things mm-hmm. dismantle these systems mm-hmm. and ideas and rebuild but uh, decolonizing in a collective way is to really like when I use that term decolonizing I mean like how is your relationship with nature and all of existence collectively right like mm-hmm. like are are you actually effectively able to engage in that whole person way you're describing. I mean when we talk about whole health we're talking about holistic ideas we're talking about public health. When we talk about a social model of disability, a social model of trauma, it's that it's literally it's just an all-encompassing idea of how we are connected to the ecosystem of existence, right? Mm-hmm. It's a lot it's a lot to recognize that we are living and dying simultaneously and that emotional distress can be a product of that.
0: Yeah, exactly, exactly. So what do you all do in your your respite? You know, I um, opened a respite here in um, Los Angeles. I say I, I didn't, I literally did not do it by myself. That would be an impossibility. But, um, (laughs) you know, uh, with and through a a group of people and a a peer-run organization, uh, we opened one of, well, one of the first, it was two at the time, peer-run respites. And of course, you know, being contracted through a county agency. You know, now we're working for LA County, which means all these rules and regulations, and trying to figure out uh, how to help the county create a contract that would honor what we needed to do and the way that we need to do it, sort of. Um, no, we're not many clinicians. No, this is, this is no, we're not going to be managing people's medication. We're not doing that. We're not going to ask them that they take it. Um, We're not going to make them go to groups because it was kind of like how the county sort of envisioned um, day treatment programs. And they were taking sort of that envisioning of a day treatment program and writing the scope of work so that the (laughs) parents, your respite look like a day treatment program where you can spend the night. It's like, no, 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 no. Yeah. So how, how do, and then I'm going to ask how you all are funded. Cause I think that's another thing when we're trying to do things that are not compromised by the quote unquote system, it's really difficult because you have to find different kinds of funding sometimes to do that.
1: All right, let's go. So yeah, there's so much to that. So first I want to say, don't accept contract dollars that don't serve you. <laughs> yeah. I I like to think about it in my own life, right? Like like I'm not going to work on if a relationship is toxic or harmful, I'm not going to bring that in to to myself or my community or or, or in those spaces and if if a contract is written in a, in a way that is reflective of policing. And when I talk about policing, I don't mean just law enforcement. I mean every type of policing, right? You don't have to take that into your organization. If you want to try to have, I mean, I've I've seen people attempt it, you know, like I've I've certainly, you know, are like, oh, well, maybe, maybe you can bring in clinical consultants, maybe you can do the work this way. And you always try to think about how that can be done. And that's certainly to say that yes, it is possible to have clinical consultants and be a peer in organization and do the work in a way that is with integrity, um, care, and connection. But at the same time, you know, it's it's a careful consideration. So. We started off with funding from the executive office of health and human services, uh, through the Commonwealth of Massachusetts that went to the department of mental health, really supporting us with building the initiative, building the work. Uh, it was very collaborative from the beginning of like, although this contract that was proposed was for a clinical respite, it's being awarded to a peer run organization. So Mm -hmm. What are we willing to do? What really works in, in, in our space, you know, in the ways in which we operate? And a big part of that was was that we weren't going to refer to the people coming in as referrals, right? We were going mm-hmm. to, to say, you know someone can recommend that person and they can be recommended by anyone anywhere and they can recommend themselves. So that was an important structural piece first mm-hmm. was not to police how the people come in, but there is to a certain degree, how you can handle just in your capacity, your own personal being and for the team, like, like how many people are coming in. So what we did was we had a recommendation form, you know, that's, that's really how, how we put together. And then people would be invited in just like they could be in any other space and then we've really operated under the culture of people can check in to the respite and then they check out and they're guests right and we fostered that culture in a house we actually started in a hotel on the fifth Ooh. floor of a hotel because we weren't sure if we were going to sustain the funding and then we did and then we got a house so we're in a six-room house three bathrooms it's actually a three-floor house um, that we've worked very hard to make accessible in so many yeah. different ways and it's, it's a beautiful environment and then on top of that we've also been doing mobile peer respite and uh we've
0: okay whoa (laughs) mobile peer respite but yeah we're taking it back a second (laughs) well i have not heard that this is whoa this is what is that (laughs) that's brand new
1: information so i don't know if mobile peer respite officially exists with the other 29 peer respites that exist in the united states Mm -hmm. i don't know if anyone in our international community is also like working the the work of mobile peer respite. I'm sure people in in peer support in some capacity are offering a degree of respite, but we formalized it in the way of we have mobile peer respite advocates, because we refer to them as peer respite advocates, the folks that work on our team, who go to folks' homes or meet them out in the community, whatever they prefer. And support them for one to four hours at a time, multiple times out of the week, anywhere in the Commonwealth. So that's wow. anywhere. Okay.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That is so interesting. When we started our peer respite, I went around the country. Before we even started, I went around the country and started visiting some peer respites. And sorry, I did not make it to Massachusetts. I didn't make it that far north. <laughs> um, east that's and a north. lot
1: to go all the way to Mass <laughs> from. <laughs>
0: Yeah, I got as as far as um, upstate New York, so you know where I was. It's because I have family in New York, so that was kind of an easy thing to go and do. The idea was if I'm in a state and I could find a peer respite, I wanted to go visit it and see it, get a feel for it, that sort of thing, and then come back and figure out how to advocate that we have this um, here in California, especially in L.A. And so we had one in um, California already in the Northern Bay Area. And when we started thinking about what we wanted for ours and looking for housing, I'll never forget how annoyed people were with me because I'm like, no, that has steps. It's not accessible. Well, They can come through the back door if they're in a wheelchair. Like nobody comes through the back door. Everybody comes through. Everybody comes through the door they want to come through. And the front door generally is that door. (laughs) (laughs) but we're not sending people to another door because the the entrance isn't accessible. And that, you know, the rooms had to be accessible as well and so forth. So we finally found a place. It It was really great. And then working on more of those cultural aspects of the experience. We wanted people to have an experience. It wasn't about coming in because you needed a respite. What was that respite experience going to be like? And it had to be from the even before you even got to the place, right? So um, like you're saying, instead of referrals, it was, you know, I don't know that we use recommendations, but um, we did um, think of it kind of like, you know, where do you go when you want a break? Like what, what kind of places mm-hmm. do people go? And people kept saying, well, we go to hotels. So we built that into the experience that a person could have Uh, through the respite from filling out a registration form, just like you would fill out a registration form at a hotel, you know, you fill out your registration, you could pre-register. So you're, you know, so you didn't have to go through and fill out all the information. We did not make people sit down and go through a long checklist of questions Mm -hmm. and things like that. And that was more about, we get, we will get to know people over time. We're not going to get to know them in a 10 minute sitting while they're really just wanting a cup of coffee or just to lay down or, you know, sit outside to fill like, why out why would you do that?
1: Yeah.
0: Yeah, an intake form, right? Yeah, <laughs> so <sure. laughs> like we we language, we experience. But um I, you know, this idea of a mobile respite is great. Um I wanna ask you too about advocacy work or activism work. So yeah. so I have two questions one is in your peer training so your peer certification training is there a piece in there about the role of advocacy self advocacy system advocacy or is that also is that also one of the things that you all train on or have an expectation so
1: like for the for the state training we actually have three uh, core principles which are peer support being a change agent, an agent of change, which encompasses advocacy. And then the other one is in, but not of the system. So straight up when you take it, everything that's built, all 30 something modules are built around those three core principles
0: Mm. just
1: to start up. And then our code of ethics, you know, we start with self-determination and then like our code of ethic number six is like, we will not abide by or condone Or facilitate any form of discrimination, any form of discrimination at all. And you won't condone it, right? Which means you won't be Uh present for it. Like Uh it's a violation of your code of ethics to actually be present for it. Right. And we, and you know, it's, I use that term violation, code of ethics, all of those things, but those are really the Commonwealth terms. Those are, those are what often certification bodies use. Yeah. And then aside from that, we have a whole bunch of different trainings of a variety of things that we do. You know, uh, we center a lot of trainings around trauma. We train trauma-informed peer support, our own adapted curriculum, not necessarily the one that has, Mm -hmm. you know, come from SAMHSA, but although we did train with SAMHSA for a period of time and we do a peer trauma guide training, which is our own like intensive like continuation of that Uh certified peer specialist training that's focused around trauma, crisis in the moment, working in different environments, working in an emergency room environments, emergency services environments. We do a living with suicide training that's for both folks who have life experience with suicide themselves but also more largely the caretakers of those folks the family members it's Mm. an individual approach it's not necessarily a group approach although Mm -hmm. we have a living with suicide group that we do and um on top of that we have we have a variety of trainings we do a psychiatric survivor history uh training as well and we have modules on that also
0: yeah Oh, wow. That's really interesting. I, and do you ever do those, um, any of that virtually, or is that all? Here I am trying to sign up for one of your trainings. I'm <laughs> totally, it's all about me in the moment. But yeah, but I, you know, for um, other people who are like, wow, well, I wish I could do that, but I live here, I don't live there. How much of this is virtual and how much of it is in person and particularly for folks um, in your state? So we've,
1: we do a combination it's, it's virtual and in person, most trainings have been virtual and we're going to kind of keep it that way. Cause we've really built an online community and not even just folks like outside of the state, but even within the state, you know, I got a call from someone the other day that was just like, you know, I was just answering the call at one of the centers mm-hmm. and um, they were like, they're like, I want to let you know how much I appreciate. Kiva for like everything you do. And he said, like, like, I am homebound, like I can't leave. I'm a disabled person and all of my services have forgotten about me and they've reopened in person. And y'all have just continued to offer more. And, you know, for Mm. me that I was like, that's the root of it. Like if anything, you know, going in, going hybrid, isn't just about meeting those service numbers. It shouldn't be about those service numbers. That's, that's exactly what the medical industrial complex's ideas are selling, right? It's about people like him, people like us, disabled folk more largely, like how the hell did
0: everyone just forget about us, you know? Amazing, right? And COVID, it's like, oh, wow, I can't do that. Suddenly the world opens up and I keep telling people, welcome to my world. This is not new. Welcome to my Mm -hmm. world. This idea of, you know, remote working or rescheduling how your day is, thinking about the importance of uh, connecting to other human beings, like all of this was as soon as they started talking about social distancing I was saying, no, we're going to have to reframe that. It's not about distancing from people socially. Um, It is about, yes, we cannot be physically close to people and we can be very socially close to people in lots of different Mm -hmm. ways. So let's get creative about it in safe ways because isolation, no bueno, for the most part, there are times when isolation is exactly what I need. It is so healthy for me, (laughs) but uh, all the time, no, not all the time.
1: It's the same reason why we shouldn't have disabled folk go through the back door. That's the idea. It's like it's like oh, it's all right as long as the non-disabled people are okay. Yeah. we can forget about them. I mean, I, I'm thinking about the center of disease controls director, like midst of the pandemic, like as long as you're not chronically ill or, dis- yeah. Yeah. <laughs> or experiencing things in this way, you
0: should be fine. You're fine. You can. Un- yeah. The rest of you. Oh, well, too bad. <laughs> See you later. Ta-ta. TTFN Ta-ta for now. Yeah, that was horrible. When I read that, I was like, do you understand what just came out of your lips? That is so inappropriate. Oh my goodness.
1: I signed a letter to the CDC and uh, some of us met with the CDC, like I want to say a few weeks later, and it was, it was messed up. And same thing with CVS and the prescriptions and just the amount of disabled folk that have died. And like, if you think that our missions in terms of mental health and disability rights are separate, you are very
0: wrong. (laughs) Exactly. That is another thing that I think we could work far better on improving and seeing these as collaborative work, similar work, same work, however, whatever words we want to use, but they are not um, separate at all at all. So, um, And I know when I I entered in first, of course, to um, more mental health activism, if you will, and um, couldn't understand why the disability community and the mental health community were not working closer together, disability rights community. There are just so many things where I was like, well, wait a minute, but that law covers us as well. Those protections are for us as well. And sometimes, you know, you need power and numbers. We're all fighting for the same thing here. So why can't we do this together? I think that, you know, we're still struggling with some stigma, you know, around who wants to have a mental illness.
1: Well, I think like disability rights also looks different for the mad labeled mentally ill and neurodivergent, because what happens is, is that you're perceived as violent as well as unable. So the context of disability rights changes.
0: Mm Mm-hmm exactly exactly because that's not that's not happening over in um in other forms of disability that's not sort of the construct yeah Yeah. that's a very good point i hadn't thought about that i think you know hearing you um helps resonate with me about when we focus on people but things around us are focused on power privilege politics paternalism you all the (laughs) peace
1: I contributed a chapter for uh, the new Drop the Disorder book. So I guess shameless plug capitalism. Here we go. But also like at the same time, this this chapter and the book hasn't been released yet is, uh, is like it's, it's the how to guide to become a mad abolitionist. And the focus of the whole chapter is a lot of it's on collectivism. It does start with the story of Lois Langdon, who's Malcolm X's mother, Mm -hmm. and her institutionalization in Kalamazoo State Hospital and the circumstances of that, and white social workers, policing, and all that fun stuff. But then it leads into, here are the tangible steps as mad activists, the work that we can do. And a lot of it is is that uh, patriarchy is so driven on individual power uh colonization was always driven on the individual power of a of of a collective group but also uh, kings and monarchs right alike and then that individuality now it's like now you as an individual your information everything that you contribute is sold so like now you're the product right well we've always been the product in many different contexts but now digitally you're the product on top of Mm -hmm. so many things and i think for me that feeds into the individuality in that very toxic sense right so Mm -hmm. I realize this a lot too, by, uh, you know, I, I really got into content creation more now than I had before. And I think a lot mm-hmm. of people have. Mm-hmm. And I started making like a series of TikTok videos on Mad History, which uh, if folks want to check it out, it's it's on TikTok. But I stopped. I took a step back from that content creation too. And I had to rethink, am I feeding into this larger idea of myself as the product When what I want to do is increase public awareness, right? And how can you do that at a pace that serves you and your collective and your movement and doesn't destroy you, destroy your image, destroy what you think of yourself and destroy your self-value?
0: Yeah, I think I'm noticing a lot of content creators having this conversation with themselves on YouTube, right? Yeah. Like <laughs> deciding, oh, I need to take a break or is this really what I want to do? And, you know, so um, as we wrap up, you dropped a lot of wisdom. It's like everybody does throughout the whole conversation. What one nugget, one thing, if you had to leave one thing uh, for people who are listening in, what one wisdom dropping do you have for them? One nugget for them?
1: Mm, I think... The most um, important thing when we talk about some of these ideas of what is radically needed for our community and ourselves, we'll find it in each other. And I like to think of uh, many things, you know, there's there's this idea of like, uh, follow plants, not gurus, and what is a guru, right? Everything's a guru. My this lamp next to me is a guru. My my lemon tree behind me is a guru. Because you learn Mm. lessons in everything, and you learn lessons from each other. And you know, I learn lessons from ancestors who haven't been alive for a very long time, right? And in the context of what we call alive, but and I know that that's maybe for some of the listeners, you're just like, okay, wow, that's a mad thought right there. But um, what, what I'm trying to say in that is, is that is that we have lessons in each other and we can value and appreciate that. You can set boundaries and there's so much in community care and accountability efforts and what we do uh, with each other as a collective that I think um, is so important when we think about dismantling a lot of these ideas, but also building communities of healing independent of those systems, these ideologies, mm-hmm. and to not give up on that, right? It actually, it takes a discipline of hope. I'm going to quote Miriam Kaba, uh, a discipline of hope to really uh, push through a lot of these things. So, so, so you actually have to have hope, whether you don't like that term hope or not, or you don't feel it's liberatory, you don't feel like it aligns, you don't have to take it. But however you think of that concept, it takes that hope in the face of the horrifying to really be able to move through together as a
0: collective. Mm. Wow. Love that. Thank you. Thank you. Wow. Okay. I have to like breathe that one in, breathe it in, take it in. Thank you so much um, for spending some time with me today. I really, really appreciate it. Thank you, Vesper.
1: It was so great to be here, Karis. And I'm so glad that we were able to connect. I know that you you're like like talking about like, we're just getting to know each other, but I feel like I've known you for a long time.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's been, it's just been wonderful. And to meet you in person and hang out with you in person has been um, also an absolute joy. So uh, thank you for joining. I want to thank the listeners also for joining in and just a reminder to Well, y'all know what to do. I don't know why. Well, I do know why. Just, you know, whatever. Like, subscribe, share. Most importantly, share. Subscribing and all that other stuff. Yeah, you know, to me, my producer's going to kill me for saying that. (laughs) But to me, the most important thing is to share this great information that we're hearing from folks with other people. So thanks for joining in. And until next week, um, we'll check you later on Unapologetically Black Unicorns.